Welcome to Woking Up. White supremacy. White, white, white supremacy is the fringe of the fringe. This is a mini-series brought to you by Polite Conversations. All of a sudden we can't talk about Neanderthal DNA anymore. Here I'll talk about my journey into and out of being a new atheist Sam Harris fan. In and of itself, in and of itself, that video is not evidence of racism. I'm your ex-Muslim host, Ina. No, not the right-wing kind. Thank you for tuning in. This is how the left will die. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 7 of Woking Up. Yes, it's back. I know, I know, it's been a while since I did one of these. There's a lot to catch up on, but thank you for your patience. I really needed a break from this particular project as it is very intense and consuming and draining. The amount of research and effort that goes into just one of these is ridiculous and sometimes I wonder if it's even worth it, if it's actually reaching people or not. Because you see, Sam Harris has created this sweet little spot for himself where everyone he's publicly surrounded himself by in the past few years has turned out to be such a blatant piece of shit that by comparison he comes off looking like the best turd in the pile. You have anti-vaxxers, Trumpians, conspiracy theorists, and just all flavors of awful. All of whom Sam has helped raise the profiles of and endorsed, mind you. But for some, desperate to cling to his credibility, it seems they'll forever point at others more obvious in their terribleness than Sam and say, hey, hey, well, at least he's not that bad. But therein lies the danger, friends. This is the guy that's going to increase the longevity and the credibility of these IDW-type projects. Right-wing, rebranding, rehabilitation stuff, you know? This is the guy that's going to reach and recruit people that are less far-right than, say, James Lindsay's fans. Which is precisely what's alarming about him. Because he can reach further across the political spectrum. While Lindsay, especially now, is restricted to the very obvious far right of that spectrum, Sammy can appear more reasonable, but legitimize and support the same kinds of ideas. He can get people from the so-called center on board too because he does it much more respectably, you see. He won't openly say that he's worried wokeness will cause white genocide like James Lindsay has, but he will fearmonger about wokeness causing reverse racism and talk about how Muslimic birth rates are ominous and how France is probably going to be a majority Muslim country in a couple of decades and how that'll cause a civil war or something. So yeah, still pretty fucking ridiculous and dangerous. They're all cogs in the same right-wing spin machine with shared goals and shared enemies and You have to see them all as pieces and parts of the same problem. So I just sometimes wonder if enough people are noticing the extent of the awful here in regards to Sam because it is bad. He's just smarter about it than Dave Rubin or the Weinsteins are. So 
I'm always wary of the type of IDW quote-unquote critic that has picked one or two of the lower-hanging IDW fruit and focus mostly on them while assuring you that people like Sam Harris are indeed one of the better ones and that we should give him some credit because he isn't a QAnoner or anti-vaxxer, you see. Just ignore the fact that he's repeatedly propped people up who turn out to be these things and use his platform to make these very people more influential. But, you know, he's he's different from all the other IDWers. He's, he's better. Plus, he did that whole IDW retirement thing. <laughs> Please, I'm gonna stop you right there with that line of reasoning. The bar is on the fucking ground. We covered the disingenuous IDW retirement in episode three of Woking Up, I believe. You can check out why I thought that was a crock of shit over there. And, like... You know, since then, he's done nothing differently. He's continued to pump out the same IDW-esque garbage again and again and again. He was just uncomfortable with that branding since it became such a joke and also easily identified them all as people with horrendous views and garbage politics. The jig was up. It was time to move on to maybe other labels or maybe no labels. Whatever it takes to maintain that plausible deniability and respectability. And you know, he's so definitely better than all the other right-wingers because at least he's not out there jumping on the latest right-wing moral panic, critical race theory, fear-mongering, or anything. The idea of having a right answer to a problem is racist. Those claims are not just coming out of the mouths of blue-haired maniacs. This is the kind of thing that is infecting the New York Times and even scientific journals like Nature and The Lancet and JAMA. And during COVID, there were just some insane claims from our best organs of of science that seem to have become, at least on on those topics, organs of critical race theory. Organs of critical race theory. Critical race theory. Oops. In fact, just in July, Sam tweeted high praise for an episode of Barry Weiss's podcast about whether schools should ban CRT or not. This is the free speech crowd, everyone. Who argues for the fucking free speech rights of Nazis on campus and shit, but talking to students about the history of their country, about racism, well, banning that type of speech should be treated as a fair and legitimate position. Love to be a free speech warrior, eh? Barry began this episode legitimizing every garbage right-wing talking point you've ever heard regarding this CRT panic. Over the past month or so, I'm the mother of a high school senior. Parents around the country have been showing up at school board meetings and speaking out against what they are calling critical race theory. Critical race theory is teaching that white people are bad. That's not true. That would teach my daughter that her mother's evil. The reason that these parents are talking about it now isn't because they've all just discovered the writings of critical theorists like Derek Bell or Kimberly Crenshaw. 
No. The reason they're talking about it is because the worldview of critical race theory, the concepts associated with critical race theory, concepts with names like systemic racism, white privilege, white fragility, anti-racism, 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 wait, wait, wait. Anti-racism is critical race theory now? The idea of racial affinity groups. All of those ideas that were once confined to elite classrooms at law schools and universities, they're now showing up, well, pretty much everywhere. And did she just admit that she would rather it remain confined to elite classrooms? (laughs) They're showing up in mandatory race consciousness trainings at companies like Disney and Amazon. They're showing up in newspapers. They're showing up on television. And, most importantly, they're showing up in classrooms across the country. Oh dear, well we can't have anti-racism show up in Disney and on TV and in our classrooms now. Think of the children! They're showing up in classrooms across the country where they are affecting what millions of American children are being taught about the country, about race, and about themselves. CRT is not racial sensitivity or simply teaching unfavorable American history or teaching Jim Crow history. CRT and its hierarchy in society where white, male, heterosexual, able-bodied people are deemed the oppressor and anyone else outside of that is oppressed. I don't know about you, but telling my child or any child that they are in a permanent oppressed status in America because they are black is racist. All of this is what's causing parents to come out and demand an end to it. Not only does it not promote justice, it does the opposite. It promotes racism. And you cannot cure racism with more racism. The types of quotes she chooses to highlight here are no different to what Candace Owens would have to say on the topic. The twisting of words, the hijacking of social justice language. Actually, the people who talk about racism and notice racism are the real racists. (laughs) Don't we all know that one by now? This is just another version of it. One of the oldest right-wing tricks in the book. Rather than listening to the concerns of these parents and taking them seriously, the talking heads on cable news have decided to play word games with the issue. And and I'll give you three examples of critical race being taught in schools. Hold on one second. In Cupertino, California. These are in your talking points. Robin Robin D'Angelo is not a critical race theorist, and I want everyone... Yeah, not like the anti-CRT crew and Barry Weiss are playing word games with this or twisting anything, right? Elite media figures have spent most of their energy arguing that these parents are ignorant about what CRT really is. We're going to deconstruct their racial identities That's and then rank themselves theory. according to power and privilege. It's intersectionality theory. Which Isn't the 1619 Project critical race theory? No, it's not actually. It's absolutely not. No, 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 or in another one of their favorite moves, claiming that anyone opposed to these new programs is merely a racist that wants to protect their own privilege. Uh, that's the whole thing about what privilege is, is that people don't like to have their pleasure interrupted, their peace interrupted. And so people think that it should be the way that it should be because they have been taught that in, right. in, in this country. Of course, this has only made the parents coming out to these meetings more passionate than ever. Just because I do not want critical race 
race theory taught to my children in school does not mean that I'm a racist, damn it. <laughs> So yes, critical race theory, it's an imperfect and confusing term. Just like wokeness, just like social justice, just like intersectionality. Vague enough to fit anything the right wants it to, just like wokeness or political correctness. Anything that disrupts the status quo, anything they don't like or feel threatened by. Those that are trying to play semantic games or pretend that you need to have a law degree or a PhD or even a college degree to talk about this subject, they're intentionally hiding the ball. And no, contrary to what you may have heard, this is not some right-wing attempt to stop public schools from talking about the history of slavery or the nature of racism in America. Oh, I think that's exactly what it is, Barry. In schools across the country, not all schools, but a lot of schools, administrators and teachers are bringing this fringe, divisive, and yes, sometimes even racist ideology into the classroom. And they're bringing it into the classroom under the guise of progressivism. More than that, they are using this worldview to undermine or get rid of core academic programs, programs like algebra and other basic parts of an American education. And the reason they are doing that is because if those programs result in any difference in outcome between racial groups, then that in and of itself is seen as evidence of systemic racism. All she does in this episode is use cherry-picked examples to instill fear that the left is coming after white people, white children especially, under the guise of progressivism. She also used an example of a foster child who had a tough life to imply that white privilege wasn't a real thing. It just so manipulative. And tell me how that that's different from something Paul Joseph Watson, formerly of InfoWars, would put out. The most amazing part about this is that as they are doing it, they are denying it. Critical race theory is not taught in elementary schools or middle schools or high schools. It's a method of examination taught in law school and in college that helps analyze whether systemic racism exists and in particular whether it has an effect on law and public policy. But cultural warriors are labeling any discussion of race, racism, or discrimination as CRT to try to make it toxic. They are bullying teachers and trying to stop us from teaching students accurate history. So just to be clear, this is Randy Weingarten saying that critical race theory is a boogeyman, and yet... And she uses accurate quotes like this as her examples of progressive dishonesty. At one point, to describe people in favor of CRT bans as a totally normal position, she actually compared banning critical race theory from schools to banning phrenology, ironically something her IDW friends are very much into, and banning Holocaust denial in schools. The question then becomes, what should be done about all of this? 
Some Republican lawmakers in states around the country think they've come up with the right solution. And that solution is a ban, to legally ban critical race theory from public schools. As it stands, there are more than a dozen states that have proposed bills banning or restricting the teaching of this ideology or passed them. Now, supporters of these bills say that that's a no-brainer in the same way that we would ban phrenology or Holocaust denial or criticize teachers that teach astrology as a real science. Of course we should ban racial essentialism. It's un-American. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but these things are very different from anti-racism. So dishonest. And this is the quality of content that Sam considers excellent and worth promoting. Sam really is just a more restrained James Lindsay, or Dave Rubin, even, with a monocle. When will people get this? Maybe some rational bros can tell me again how Sam is merely a misguided progressive, or how unfair it is to write articles pointing out that he does often merge with the far right in rhetoric and views. And to top it all off, Barry's episode featured intelligent design advocate Chris Rufo as if he's some legitimate voice and not just a far-right propagandist that has acknowledged multiple times that part of his plan was to A, fearmonger about CRT, and B, toxify and taint any mention of inequality, race, racism, and brand it all under the umbrella of CRT regardless of whether it is or not, so that any future discussions on race and racism could be discredited. And she refers to Rufo as one of the most informed people. (laughs) So a few weeks ago, I called up two of the most informed and engaged people that are arguing on opposite sides of this debate, Christopher Rufo and David French. If you have heard of the phrase critical race theory, it is likely because of the work of Chris Rufo. He has done the lion's share of reporting that has brought this issue into the mainstream. He's also been working with state lawmakers on many of these proposed bills. This is what Sam considers excellent. I cannot stress it enough. Promoting intelligent design advocates to own the libs. That's where we are now. At this point, honestly, anyone that mentions CRT as something to seriously worry about and not to point out that it's a right-wing fear-mongering tactic, a dog whistle, and a nonsense moral panic should be seen in a similar light to any other right-wing hack leaning on this shit. Teaching of critical race theory in America's schools has been meeting fierce resistance from parents all across the nation. You've seen that. Look, we should be celebrating diversity. Critical race theory doesn't celebrate diversity. It weaponizes it. That's bad for America. Joining me now, Steve Miller, my great pal. I'll just say this. The critical race theory will hopefully be the moment when the left overreached so dramatically in pushing this policy that there was a giant snapback and America said enough, enough, enough. We're not going to take this anymore. Let's not forget, Larry, it was the Democrat Party for decades that was the party of segregation, not Republicans, the party of Lincoln and civil rights. And critical race theory is simply a new attempt at segregation, a new attempt at dividing people based on their skin color. 
And the party of Lincoln, the party of Reagan, the party of Trump, the party of Eisenhower will not stand for it. In the universities, this is called critical race theory. So that's the term that most people go with. Critical race theory. That's what we so often debate on television. That's a clip we just showed you. It's not critical race theory. It's racism. Not neo-racism or reverse racism. Those are meaningless terms. It is race hate. It is peddled by the people in charge in the hope that it will make them more powerful. That's all it is. We haven't said that often enough or clearly enough. And because we haven't, because we've been tied up in some pointless debate about a concept that nobody can actually define, the race hate, and that's what it is, has oozed from the universities and it has infected the entire country, including at the very highest levels. All right, so the pushback to critical race theory has begun. Christopher Rufo is one of the lead researchers on that particular issue. He now works over at the Manhattan Institute. The kind of thing that is infecting the New York Times and even scientific journals like Nature and The Lancet and JAMA. And I mean, during COVID, there were just some insane claims from our best organs of, of science that seem to have become, at least on, the, on those topics, organs of you know, critical race theory. Organs of you know, critical race theory. Critical race theory. Critical race theory. These right-wing talking heads, they're really not so different from one another, are they? And Sam is not so different from them. Anyway, before we get to the meat of this episode and keeping with our extremely Harris theme, let me just do a little housekeeping. No, I don't have any accusations of racism that I need to clarify and expand upon, (laughs) but I'll just do my own kind of housekeeping. So, as I was saying before, I I really needed that break from the swamp of high-level ideas that I have to wade through for waking up, and doing that with very little sleep and almost zero alone time and almost zero quiet time to record, courtesy of my toddler, it's starting to seem pretty difficult. But aside from podcasting challenges, there has been a lot going on in my life personally too, and I've just been feeling super overwhelmed and swamped, sort of demotivated. We moved recently for one, so that's been an upheaval. And uh, definitely, zero out of 10, do not recommend moving with a baby during a global pandemic with minimal help. Avoid that if you can. It took months and months of planning, and uh, still, everything that could go wrong did go wrong. I won't bore you with the details, but let's just say last-minute burst pipes were involved and cost me thousands upon thousands of dollars that I don't have. Um, Our couch wouldn't fit up the basement stairs. I don't even know how we got it in there to begin with, so... We had to saw it in half at the last minute to get it out. Under immense time constraints, too, because we had to vacate our place by a certain time for the new people, and it was just madness. And just locating the right type of saw on such short notice was an adventure in itself. Then it turns out I might need some surgery soon, unrelated to the move and unrelated to all the awful content I expose myself to, don't worry. But all of this is happening at once, of course. So that whole thing has been fun. So I just thought I'd explain 
that this is why production of Woking Up was sort of on break for a bit. Other types of podcast episodes are so much easier to do than these. Um, so I did a few of those. And uh, on top of all that, over the course of this pandemic, I've lost pretty much most of my freelance design gigs. So with the recent move and ridiculous amounts of unexpected expenses, it has been tough, man. So I'm opening up my commissions for art. If you want any art for Christmas, let me know soonish. Pet portraits or people portraits or house portraits even make great gifts. You can email me or DM me or message me on Instagram or Patreon. You can check out my Instagram for any existing prints I have too. I'll add all those links in the show notes. But any support would be much appreciated in these pretty tough financial times. And of course, if you're listening to this and happen to have any freelance illustration or design work or audio editing work, please do let me know because... That would be massively helpful right now, too. And finally, if you've ever enjoyed my podcast and wanted to support it, but haven't quite got around to it, this would really be a very, very helpful time to do so. I absolutely hate talking about these types of personal issues and pitching and selling. I hate it so much. It's super cringe. But I am really in a tighter spot financially than I've ever been. So yeah, support this show if you like it and can. Thank you very much for listening to that pitch, which I hated doing. And if you are already a patron, thank you so, so much, because you are the reason I'm able to continue this podcast. I cannot express enough how grateful I am to have people like you that support my work. It is a great privilege to have any support at all. Thank you sincerely. You guys are the absolute best, which is why I did a pet portrait giveaway on Patreon recently. And time permitting, I would like to do more art giveaways on Patreon. So hopefully we can make that happen more often. Let's see now. What else? Um, Oh yeah. If you've been following my other show, Polite Conversations, you'll know that there was this sort of bizarre drama and lurch backwards in the supposed progressive areas of the atheist scene where all sorts of surprising people came out of the woodwork to deny what I thought was well-established fact that new atheism did in fact merge with the far right. So I spent some podcasting time on that stuff too. It sort of felt weird continuing on with this more advanced, specific, granular kind of stuff when so many seemed unclear on the 101 stuff still. If you missed all that and want to catch up on it, you can check out my previous three episodes, which I will also link in the show notes. And yeah, boy, that was a disappointing and eye-opening chapter too. Jesus, so many people I thought were allies and on the right side of this clearly weren't. So, dear listeners, we are in this shit far deeper than I thought and must push back harder than ever before. Great times to be alive, though. You know, Tucker Carlson is using the tragic situation in Afghanistan to spread some great replacement type shit. 
an unrelenting stream of immigration. But why? Well, Joe Biden just said it, to change the racial mix of the country. That's the reason, to reduce the political power of people whose ancestors lived here and dramatically increase the proportion of Americans newly arrived from the third world. And then Biden went further. He said that non-white DNA is the, quote, source of our strength. Imagine saying that. This is the language of eugenics. It's horrifying. But there's a reason Biden said it. In political terms, this policy is called the Great Replacement, the replacement of legacy Americans with more obedient people from faraway countries. They brag about it all the time. But if you dare to say it's happening, they will scream at you with maximum hysteria. And here you have Joe Biden confirming his motive on tape with a smile on his face. But don't worry, because white supremacy is just fringe of the 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 fringe. It's being promoted on national TV, but you know, fringe. Because as we all know, it only counts as white supremacy if there's a self-identifying KKK guy involved. And Tucker certainly isn't that. Do you see a hood? No, well, can't be white supremacy then. I mean, sure, Tucker recently had a self-described defender of white nationalism and Anders Breivik apologist on, Curtis Yarvin or Moldbug, you might know him as. But you know, even though he was invited onto a mainstream network, it's still fringe. Because there was no hood. And you think I'm kidding, but sadly, this is not just a straw man or a parody of Sam's views on this type of thing. Here he is in a recent interview on another terrible-seeming podcast called Unspeakable, where the host sounds like she's just as bad, if not worse, than him. Here they are talking about Trump. You know, the guy that Sam always criticizes in his own unique way. Um, and it wasn't even, it wasn't a mainstream phenomenon even with Trump in the White House, right? I mean, it's, it's, no. Having Trump in the White House was not having, was not the same thing as having a white supremacist in the White House. And again, I, I say this to someone who, who believes he knows to a, a moral certainty that Trump actually is a, you know, uh, certainly an Archie Bunker-like racist. Yeah, do you actually think he's a, he's a racist? I mean, I've talked about this with people. I don't actually think he's a sexist. I think he's a womanizer. Right. I don't think he's yeah. a misogynist. I just think these are, these are, you know, these are tiny little discrepancies. But, like, is he a, he's an opportunist, so he'll, he'll take anybody he can get. Right, right. So it's, you know, I viewed his presidency as a disaster, but he was not a grand dragon of the KKK. He was not a grand dragon of the KKK. He was not a grand dragon of the KKK. And he was not giving witness to a massive cultural influence of, you know, white supremacist thinking in our society. And to the degree that the left alleged that, the, the left went, you know, properly crazy under Trump. The left went, you know, properly crazy under Trump. The left went, you know, properly crazy under Trump. Um, and um, so... The asymmetry here is important to point out. The reason why we focus on, on what's happening on the left, the, the extreme voices of, of wokeness and, and social justice and uh, um, I, 
identity politics there is because the, the fringe on the left isn't just the fringe anymore. The fringe on the left has fully captured our institutions. It's captured academia. It's captured the media. It's captured tech. It's captured Hollywood. Uh, and so, I mean, we're, we're living in a world where the most powerful people in our society you know, produce their own hostage videos, right. saying, right. just rending themselves, talking about their their ra- internalized racism and how they're going to yeah. do better. Even after January 6th, for fuck's sake, this is what Sam is going around saying. The left is the real problem because even though Trump might be racist, he's not nearly as racist as the left say he is. Because do you see any white hoods? Checkmate libs. But back to Tucker for a minute. He's been out there saying the Taliban won because they rejected gender studies. Why did the Taliban win? How did the 6th century triumph over the 21st century? There are indications that the single most notorious and reviled government in the world, primitive people famous for their brutality, rigidity, and humorlessness, are more popular in parts of Afghanistan than they were when we expelled the Mullahs from Kandahar 20 years ago. They don't seem to be less popular. So how did that happen? What's the answer? Well, countries are very complicated, all of them, so there are likely many answers. But one of those answers may be that the population of Afghanistan has firmly rejected what our leaders were selling it over 20 years. It turns out that the people of Afghanistan don't actually want gender studies symposia. They didn't actually buy the idea that men can become pregnant. They thought that was ridiculous. They don't hate their own masculinity. They don't think it's toxic. Oh yeah, nothing toxic about the Taliban's version of masculinity at all. They like the patriarchy. Some of their women like it too. So now they're getting it all back. So maybe it's possible that we failed in Afghanistan because the entire neoliberal program is grotesque. some really bizarre fucking takes happening these days. Trying to shoehorn culture war stuff with Taliban stuff. And ludicrous as that take is, it is expected from someone like Tucker, right? At least this clown is someone Sam's never stooped to defending before. Right? Wrong. Okay, but that's not the same thing as uttering a dog whistle. I didn't claim anything about how they meant the utterance. I claimed what what effect it had. Well, no, but I mean, like, you, you take the, the, the most odious thing, I think, that you quote from Tucker, or at least you quote it in the, in the spirit of holding it up as evidence of his racism. He, he at one point says, in what sense is diversity our strength? And, you know, that can be read as, I'm a white guy who just wants to be around more white guys message. It's also a a question that has to be fair game, you know, well within the Overton window when you're talking about understanding society. And let's see, there was more ridiculous culture war slash Taliban stuff. Mike Pompeo was out there blaming the fall of Afghanistan on fucking CRT. 
I mean, what next? Some right-wing hack is gonna try and shove pronouns into one of these Taliban takes? On the left, people tend to denigrate America and Western civilization. And so the, the, very, the idea that we were, could pretend to want to spread our values to the rest of the world when we're the greatest criminals and terrorists in history. And I mean, it's just, it's surreal. On the, le- I mean, on the left, you have people who list their preferred pronouns in their Twitter bios. List their preferred pronouns in their Twitter bios. And who would want to see their neighbors and co-workers destroyed for telling off-color jokes, but who will simultaneously claim that we shouldn't judge the treatment of women under the Taliban, right? I mean, who are we to pretend to care about these women, and who are we to even judge this ancient culture for its own, you know, norms? <laughs> well, looky here. Ah, and what imaginary version of the general left is out there defending specifically the fucking Taliban's treatment of women? Holy shit. You can find some brando four-follower Twitter account defending any old take, sure. But this is uh, not a common position on the left by any stretch. Some nice steel manning there, eh? And definitely, this pronoun take belongs in the same category as Tucker's gender studies take and Pompeo's CRT take. Sam's in some good company there. This tactic of knocking down a ridiculous straw man that you made up to make it seem like you have some semblance of a point reminds me of the recent slavery video Prager U put out with Kent Owens, where... They're arguing against the imaginary woke viewpoint that slavery has been an exclusively white phenomenon. Or Dave Rubin saying in his book that the left said it was racist to criticize the literal mass-murdering jihadists at Charlie Hebdo. It's always easy to make yourself feel smart if you're arguing against something ridiculous that pretty much no one is claiming to begin with. Wonderful to see Sam employing PragerU and Fox News and Dave Rubin tactics and talking points, huh? And as for the CRT moral panic that Pompeo blamed the fall of Afghanistan on, that has links that can directly be traced back to this lovely new atheist scene, too to the people who have been nurtured by and sprouted from it, namely James Lindsay. And a while ago, we also had Trump echoing Andy Ngo's anti-Antifa shit. People keep saying that new atheism is dead and the people in it had or have little to no influence outside that scene. But two of these very key far-right, dangerous propagandists who have contributed so greatly to the polarization and toxicity and fear-mongering in the ongoing culture wars have been birthed by that very scene and at some point or another defended and promoted by Harris himself. Harris, the so-called reasonable, moderate, retired even, IDWer. And it's not that these far-right propagandists got here talking about just atheism specifically. Pedants, this is for you. It's that this was their stepping stone. I don't know how many ways I can say this, but it appears that I must keep saying it. 
that scene set things into place that reverberate throughout the right and far right even today. They joined hands with fundamentalists out of their hatred for the SJWs, the wokes, the left, whatever you want to call it today, as well as their anti-minority views. So I think the effects of new atheism are greatly underestimated, even by people who criticize it sometimes. That scene may not exist in the exact same form as it once did, but its tentacles continue to spread harm today. And this is not a godlessness problem, to be clear. There's absolutely nothing wrong with being an atheist. This is a bigotry problem of a very specific right-wing movement masquerading as neutral, objective, secular, rational, equal opportunity critics of all religion. And it is something that has not been as widely recognized or talked about as it should have been. And this is why I do what I do, even though I'm small time. I don't want to leave it unchallenged and undiscussed. I have been in it, and I would like to use my experience to tell that story. It's because I really want to make that bigger picture clear. That trajectory, the influences, the leaders, the alliances, the associations and connections, and all that stuff that I observed and came across when I was in the thick of it. And now, let's do a quick Woking Up recap to refresh everyone's memories. So far, I've just been setting it up. But now, we will really dive in. Let's see. So far in the episodes, we've touched on Sam's love for minority tokens to shield him from accusations of all types of bigotry on his ludicrous and cartoonish understanding of race and racism. I mean, according to him, some of the best things he's ever read on race are from Coleman Hughes in Quillette, also known as Caliber Weekly. So you can imagine what his views are like on the topic. You know, you have written these four articles in Quillette. In Quillette. I think it's, it's four, right? Yeah, I think four in Quillette, yeah. Which I'll kind of treat as a, a single text for the purposes of this conversation. And they're among the best things I've read on the topic of race. They're among the best things I've read on the topic of race. And the problem of identity politics. On the topic of race. We touched upon his passion for racism denial and how creative he gets with that his hypocrisy on many things, but especially on how he claims the left acts in bad faith and won't steal man ideological opponents versus his extremely uncharitable treatment of people he disagrees with, calling them things like pornographer of race or mentally ill. We've covered his election and insurrection takes, where he found a way to blame wokeness yet again, and we've also covered how much he loves identity politics, while claiming he is one of the few who's rational enough to rise above it and not even identify with his own face. 
And most recently, we covered his denial of systemic racism in policing and his infomercial on chokeholds and jujitsu. And also, we spent some time covering his absolute favorite secular hero feminist role model, Ayan Hirsi Ali, Prager U intellectual. And covering her was a nice little starter for what this episode is going to be about. Because he's such a wonderful judge of character, you see, I thought it was time to examine some of his other pals and endorsements and people and views that he spent his time and energy on and used his very massive platform to defend and praise and uplift. This is Woking Up 7, Guilt by Association. So, you see, just like New Atheism's tentacles have spread far and wide and caused a lot of harm, we're here today to explore how Sam's used his slimy reach over the years. But Ina, before you dive into that, shouldn't you talk about and give Sam some credit for calling out Brett Weinstein for his anti-vax BS recently? No, as I've said many, many times before, you definitely do not gotta hand it to the less terrible IDW types for crossing the absolute lowest bar. And let's face it, no one who claims to value science and reason should get applause or fucking credit for not being a goddamn anti-vaxxer during a fucking global pandemic. Especially if they've contributed to popularizing and legitimizing such people in the past. And especially if this is just one of many such terrible friends one has, that one has sort of been backed into a corner to call out. I mean, yes, Sam finally said something about Brett when his guest first brought him up, and after many months of their overlapping fans had requested Sam's take on ivermectin and Brett's anti-vax stances. You know, I saw this um, through commentary that Brett Weinstein put out Mm. that people who get a headache as a side effect of a COVID vaccine, which is not uncommon to get a headache, that that could be a brain fog from the mRNA getting into the brain. This is totally unsubstantiated, totally. And to try to make a parallel where the true brain fog, that is, the cognitive effect, a hit to people who do get COVID, uh, so-called long COVID or long haulers, which is happening in at least 10% of the people with confirmed infections. And, you know, I, I know many people, colleagues, people I work with who are affected by long COVID, who have a brain fog and have profound fatigue, have difficulty breathing, you know, can't even go on, on a long walk that they used to be, you know, healthy and athletic. So for anyone to posit that people who get a headache is having mRNA going into the brain, that is totally irresponsible. Hmm. It's reckless, it's, it's sick, and it, and it casts unnecessary doubts to these people. The innocent, you know, it's, it, it, in a way, Sam, I have to say it's predatory. It's taking people who want to believe in a conspiracy or don't know what to believe and making vaccines look like they're intended to harm with no evidence whatsoever. 
It's really sad. Yeah, well, so there's a conspiratorial frame of mind here, which is given just enough Pavlovian reinforcement to be almost impossible for people to break out of because, you know, there are occasional conspiracies. There are certainly bad incentives that can be detected where it's easy to allege a, you know, a profit motive on the part of Pfizer. And even then, he said he was torn on Brett and Heather's ivermectin and anti-vax episodes being removed from YouTube. I mean, what the actual fuck? And then to say it reduces mortality or improves survival by 70, 80, 90%. These are impossible. They have never occurred. This is, you know, just not acceptable. Yeah, well, so I'm... Um What's conspicuous here is what I am not saying in Brett's defense. I mean, Brett is somebody who I consider a friend. He's definitely a colleague. He's moderated some of my debates. I know his brother, Eric, very well. Uh, He's a fellow podcaster. We've been on each other's podcasts. I guess I would say that I haven't heard everything he has said on this topic, and he's gone on for many, many hours, I know, but... I've heard enough to be very uncomfortable with what he has put out there, and I I do consider it dangerous. What strikes me as just frank misinformation getting pushed out there to millions and millions of people. But it is, you know, in in Brett's case, born of almost a uh, characterological bias against institutions at this point some of which I do understand. I mean, so, like, for instance, one thing that he, that's really animating him is the, the response to what he's doing from the big tech companies, right? So the fact that YouTube will demonetize the episodes of his podcast where he discusses ivermectin. I'm torn even here. I'm torn even here. I'm torn even here. I don't, I don't know what YouTube and Facebook and all of these companies should be doing. I mean, there's certainly a straightforward argument that they should be censoring what is obviously misinformation. But the problem here is that, you know, many things that were wrong yesterday are considered good information today, right? I mean, it's like they're very unlikely to get censorship right. You know, what is outlier thinking and can be deemed dangerous or irresponsible can, in the fullness of time, proved to be the only correct view. So it's just a difficult problem that they show no sign of being able to solve. And, you know, Brett and everyone who's listening to him are incredibly animated by their clumsy efforts at censorship because they can always point to the instance where what they censored was, you know, actually is, is now CDC policy, right? You know, like, you know at one point CDC was was against mask wearing, right? And if you go, well, you're going to censor the people who said we should have been wearing masks a year ago? It was just obvious we should have been wearing masks. It's a hard problem to solve in terms of a response, and it's easy to see how people get freaked out by the authoritarian implications of having these virtually monopolistic companies close down conversation on specific topics. And also just to close the loop on Brett's concern here, it's not just that the big tech companies are doing it, but there really is a conspiracy that's happening out in the open where you have the government asking the big tech companies to do this. Right, right. It's not that no one ever conspires. Even in this case, they they even admit that they're conspiring. 
Sure, anti-vax stuff spreading on social media. That he's torn on. Banning CRT from school? Why, that's a legitimate position. We must hear out on Barry Weiss's excellent podcast with the intelligent design guy. I mean, this is what people were rushing to give him credit for. It never fails to amaze me how low he's managed to make that bar for himself. When are we praising him for not being a flat earther? (laughs) Come on! So he recently used one of his episodes to not fearmonger about wokeness and spread disinformation about racism, basically being over and not being a big deal. And then he went right back to it. I mean, you know, that stuff has real consequences too, right? And his takes on vaccines were never the problem, really. Those have been fine. The issue is that with his rare okay takes, he weaves in all his other garbage too. So people cling to the good vaccine information as a mark of his credibility, while he continues to peddle other dangerous bullshit views, including anti-science things like transness is a social contagion or even saying things like how the CDC is too woke to be trusted or it's an organ of CRT. Don't you think that kind of fear-mongering might be causing harm even in terms of the pandemic? It's sort of like how if you look selectively, Peterson can seem to be handing out benign self-help advice like clean up your room and stand up straight. Nothing wrong with that, but it's what he weaves in between that that gets pretty troubling. Like in Sam's recent AMA, where he once again addressed Brett and Heather's COVID and anti-vax disinformation because someone, and I'm sure it was more than one person, sent in a question about it. That criticism was sandwiched between his usual dangerous takes about how racism is over-exaggerated and race and IQ and Muslimics and whatnot. Rather often you have to profess to believe the unbelievable as a profession of in-group loyalty. And then the ideologies proliferate and they erect taboos and blasphemy tests that are non-negotiable. They scapegoat others. And they find they rather like to watch a human sacrifice, whether real or metaphorical. Of course, we now see this dynamic in the form of identity politics everywhere. There's not even a pretense of an argument that the world can be made better for everyone. of intolerance in the name of tolerance are making honest conversation more and more difficult and even dangerous. Because if you say anything that calls this modern catechism into question, If, for instance, you wonder whether systemic racism is really as bad as advertised by those who might be shrieking about it in Portland in front of a vacant storefront, or whether the cops are really killing disproportionate numbers of young black men at this moment in history, or whether Islam really is as peaceful and compatible with modernity as Methodism is, say, or whether there's an element of social contagion behind the increase in transgenderism among teenagers, specifically teenage girls, or if the pervasive social inequality we see in our society has anything to do with certain cultural norms actually being better than others, or more terrifying still, whether there are genetic differences among individuals or even between groups that might be involved. If you even entertain any of those ideas, well, then you're a Nazi, 
fit only to be destroyed. And this increasing commitment to moralizing and politicizing everything is becoming authoritarian. It is stifling dissent. It is punishing thought crime. And it has provoked an exodus of smart people from mainstream institutions. And so we now have podcasts and Substack newsletters proliferating by the hour. Pushed and pulled by turns to some kind of precipice. And the question is, how can we step back? I mean, reality doesn't care about the color of your skin or your biological sex or the gender with which you identify or the religion into which you were born. This is largely due to how captured these institutions are by left-wing social justice hysteria. And then when he described why he, the controversial conversation seeker and difficult discussion haver, wasn't willing to engage them on this topic, it's like he suddenly understood what so many people have been saying about engaging with phrenologists and other various far-right types. So the merely asking questions routine is in bad faith or it's totally oblivious to the corrosive effects of asking certain questions again and again. I'm not going to have someone on the podcast to talk about the 2020 election who's going to say, well, what about the 4,000 ballots in Phoenix that went missing when it's impossible to respond to a claim like that? You platform a claim like that that you can't possibly respond to. I don't know if it's made up. I don't know how many journalists it would take to track it down, but I know that in the general picture of things, the incentives are such that the claim is guaranteed to be spurious. It's like throughout so much of this Brett-Heather saga, Sam seems to be describing them in a way that others describe Sam himself. (laughs) One bit really stood out to me because it made a lot of sense. Listen. And once again, the subtext to everything they're saying, no matter how reasonable and attentive to caveats they can seem, and I will grant you, they can seem incredibly reasonable. They do not seem like Alex Jones. And this is why what they're doing is so insidious. That is spot on for once. And you could apply this pretty perfectly to Sam, too especially when it comes to race. As I said just a bit before, this is why, in my opinion, what Sam does is so much more insidious than obvious racists or far-right types. He knows how to put a respectable veneer on the same types of ideas. He knows how to hide it behind other layers so that people who don't know him or his work as well don't see it at first. But this is why you've got to be careful giving credit to the Sam Harris's or like say the Claire Lehman's for their rare, not horrendous take because the horrendousness far outweighs the rest. And if you care about this stuff, you really shouldn't be helping to legitimize or downplay people like that. Claire Lehman of Quillette calling out James Lindsay one day? Sure. But you certainly do not gotta hand it to her. 
If Sam's going to start denouncing his friends spreading dangerous views about COVID or vaccines or dangerously claiming masks and lockdowns or tyranny, he's got a long way to go. When is he going to call out Majid? or Joe Rogan, or Ayan, or Douglas Murray, or his old pal Ruben. I mean, he's just drowning in these types of awful COVID disinformation associations. So hold the applause. He did mention reaching out to Rogan recently to tell him his thoughts on having Brett and Heather on, but he failed to mention that Rogan himself has long been spreading harmful bullshit during this pandemic, and that's probably why he happily had them on. I mean, in fact, I just reached out to Joe Rogan, telling him what I thought of his latest podcast with Brett and Heather, and recommended that he figure out how to unring that bell. Uh, and maybe he will bring Brett and Heather on with someone like Eric Topol or someone even closer to uh, the topic at hand. He talks about Rogan as if his only fault on the topic of COVID was to accidentally have Brett and Heather on. How do you miss mentioning Rogan's own views on this topic? I mean, this type of omission is pretty irresponsible on Sam's part because Rogan has a huge platform even bigger than Brett and Heather. What about all the BS he's been spouting? Sam conveniently doesn't even touch that. He's so reluctant to say anything about his old crew. He still relates to them on their anti-wokeness and shit, so he always has to concede that, like even when he was criticizing Brett. Actually, there was another thread that's even more to the point, which Brett also singled out as absolutely indispensable for our understanding of what's going on among the vaccine hesitant. And this comes from someone named Constantin Kissin. It's a very long thread, but the first tweet reads, you're struggling to understand why some people are vaccine hesitant. The let me help you mega thread. Imagine you're a normal person. The year is 2016. Rightly or wrongly, you believe most of what you see in the media. You believe polls are broadly reflective of public opinion. You believe doctors and scientists are trustworthy and independent. You're a decent, reasonable person who follows the rules and trusts authority. And then he goes through all of the insults to this naive way of thinking that have occurred in the last five years or so. The Jesse Smollett hoax, the Covington Catholic high school affair or say and just just the full litany here so he runs through all of this as an explanation for why the vaccine hesitant now no longer trust authority of any kind the government scientists scientific journals public health officials as though this explains it all i would quibble with a couple of things constantin said in his litany of abuse, but the general shape of it is something I totally accept. General shape of it is something I totally accept. And it's just such a bad look to be pointing out how much common ground you have with these quacks as you're criticizing them. He also doesn't seem to be consistent at 
all, even on the things he criticized Brett about. He talked about how he wasn't interested in debating the just-asking-questions type of crowd with zero self-awareness, because usually Sam is the king of the just-asking-questions crowd. Torture is good, actually. Profiling Muslim-looking people is fine. Skull shapes, anyone? What? What are you mad at me for? I'm just asking questions and doing thought experiments, okay? Stop silencing me. And that's what I perceive Brett and his audience to be doing. We're just asking questions. We're just doubting everything. We're just being scientific skeptics. Show us the data. I'll believe it when you show it to me. Oh, but what about this little wrinkle over here? You know the jet fuel only burns at 1,500 degrees Fahrenheit and the melting point of steel is 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit. And You mean to tell me that those planes brought down those buildings? Have you heard of thermite? I've got a 90-page master's thesis I want you to read on the thermite hypothesis. Can you set a day aside for that? That's where we are. And it matters that people like Brett are choosing to contribute to that side of the conversation. Choosing to contribute to that side of the conversation. Choosing to contribute to that side of the conversation. And while criticizing Brett's anti-vax views, he seemed to be very much in favor of no platforming these exact types of views. Which, you know, I completely agree with. In fact, many on the left talk about not giving these types of views any oxygen because of the harm that they can cause. And it's Sam that does the objecting, usually. People are just not thinking clearly. And mere contrarianism is becoming part of their identities. And mere contrarianism is becoming part of their identities. I mean, there's something pornographic about all this. This reflexive distrust of institutional authority. This reflexive distrust of institutional authority is like the pornography of doubt. People are infatuated with this stuff. My, he sure likes to use pornography of and pornographer of, bukkake of lies <laughs> as a descriptor, eh? Now, what was that about contrarianism and reflexive distrust of institutional authorities? It's really rich because Sam has been spreading this type of doubt himself. In his episode before his AMA, he talked about how institutions like the WHO and CDC have immolated their reputations. Now, people, people distrust the government, they distrust the media, they distrust science and uh, scientists. You know, our, our medical journals have have lost uh, standing. Certainly, organizations like the CDC and the WHO uh, have you know fairly immolated their their reputations over the last eighteen months or so. And some of this is understandable. I mean, there really has been some terrible failures of public health messaging and instances of hypocrisy and doublethink. Even framing it in some places as it being a point in favor of Brett. I mean, first, I mean, in, you know, in Brett's defense. I mean, first, I mean, in, you know, in Brett's defense. I mean, first, I mean, in, you know, in Brett's defense. Let me acknowledge that there have been so many 
missteps and pratfalls in our public health messaging in the last 15 months that it's you know the, the trust in, in institutions has broken down this is this is what and, and broken down for in many cases good reasons I mean the whole lab leak thing you know being treated as a as you know essentially racist pornography because Trump had been talking about it um, you know it, it was obvious from the beginning that that was a plausible thesis right and it's to be I mean this is this is this is the problem with political correctness and and identity politics and, and just, just having politics um, as the lens through which you, you talk about objective reality in this case epidemiology it makes it impossible. I mean, this is some serious mixed messaging. You're generally talking about institutions that have been captured not by the far right, but by the far left. Right? This is why I have, to the minds of many people, placed an inordinate focus on the problem of wokeism and social justice activism, identity politics, and have spent much less time worrying about the far right. Right, because the far right does strike me still as the fringe of the fringe. It is a kind of moral and political and economic suicide to be fully taken in by these ideas. And yet, they have invaded our mainstream media on the left in some form. So when you ask, why is the New York Times broken? It is broken by wokeness above all else. It's broken by identity politics. It's broken by a disposition to believe accusations of racism or sexism or transphobia wherever they are uttered. To believe these things uncritically. The kinds of things listed in that Twitter thread I mentioned previously. The Covington Catholic High School debacle. That white kid staring down a Native American man with that the left has to break up with the extremists in their midst. And by that I mean within every organization that has let these people define the terms of seemingly every conversation of social importance. I think this, this issue of what's happening on, on the far left and its capture of, of uh, most of our institutions, again, that's, that's one of the the real problems with the breakdown of, of trust in institutions. And that, that's why it matters. I mean, when you ask, you know, why do we spend so much time whinging about wokeness? That's why it matters when the New York Times gets it wrong. And that's why it matters when the CDC can't be trusted to just actually talk science, right? And that's why it matters when the CDC can't be trusted to just actually talk science. The difference between that and, and, you know, Breitbart or something that's just, you know, obviously a confection of, of political tribalism, that difference has to be maintained. Like we, we, need the, we need a bulwark between the New York Times and Breitbart. Insofar as New York, the New York Times begins to resemble Breitbart, but just the, the leftist version of it, that's a, you know, that's a huge cost to all of us. I mean, whether, whether you read the Times or not, it's just, it's a, um, 
we, we can't um, we can't give up that difference. And um, what we're what we're finding is that the people who are running those institutions are um, seem to be just happily tearing them down, uh, you know, thinking that they're doing um, the, the Lord's work, and it's um, you know, that. Hence, hence our focus on, on them and not on, on uh, bigots with tiki torches. After saying all this all the time, what is even the point of calling Brett out for not trusting institutions when that's something you constantly peddle yourself? Is reflexive contrarianism and mistrust of institutions bad, like when Sam is calling out Brett? Or is it good, like when he's conceding how Brett has distrust for good reason, because all these institutions have been infected by wokeness? What is the impact of the message as a whole that he's putting out to a regular listener? It's very jumbled up and very confused, and this not trusting the CDC point he has made throughout the past year. He was severely pissed about how public health professionals expressed solidarity for the BLM protests last year, but didn't treat anti-mask and anti-lockdown protests in the same way. As if these things are remotely the same, or deserve to be treated with the same seriousness and compassion. I covered that talking point more in depth in episode 6 of Walking Up, if you wanted to check that out. He doesn't want a platform just asking questions types on vaccines, but he's happy to be constantly just asking questions himself about so many ridiculous things. Here's a recent take he had. It's not obvious to me why that's so important in the end. I mean, if you just imagine that, uh, I think correctly, that most voters will be fairly uninformed about the issues. Why does getting more and more of everybody who will be on balance uninformed add anything but noise to the signal? I mean, could, couldn't one argue that it would be better for a smaller percentage of a society to vote if that percentage were people who were actually informed about issues. Just asking questions. What? What? What if limiting the number of people voting was a good idea? Have you ever thought of that, SJWs? I mean, someone who puts out this much garbage into the world and legitimizes this many terrible ideas and people really shouldn't get to walk away from all the harm they've done quietly when these people become too embarrassing. The very least one can do is address their part in it and own it. But even with Brett, he never really owned his part in associating with him, did he? He recently brought up Majid Nawaz in a conversation on another podcast he was guesting on, and it would have been the perfect time to address his dissent into QAnon, anti-vax, anti-mask, anti-lockdown lunacy. But nope, he brought him up to bash the SPLC. You remember, right? The Southern Poverty Law Center that put Majid on some anti-Muslim watch list. And at the time, I disagreed with them. But watching Majid spiral into peddling all kinds of extreme fringe bullshit, defend all kinds of awful people, push conspiracies and shit, 
I feel like they might have been on to something about him, still having some extremist elements. hard numbers on how many quote-unquote white supremacists there are. You know, the, the marchers in Charlottesville, how many were there? A couple thousand? And the counter-protesters outnumbered them by orders of magnitude. Do we, do we know how many of those people there are? Yeah, no, I don't think we do. And, and part of the reason is that the people whose job it has been to, to keep watch on all of this and, and, and tell us how worried we should be have revealed themselves in recent years to be totally unreliable. I mean, the, the, the Southern You're Poverty Law the, Center. Yeah, Southern Poverty Law Center. I mean, yeah. there are very few um, wholesale changes in reputation. Uh, I mean, this, this astonishing. I mean, they, it went from this utterly noble and necessary organization to a, a, a uh, all-too-well-funded uh group of, of crackpots and hysterics uh, who were, you know, finding racists under every rock. Group of, of crackpots and hysterics uh, who were, you know, finding racists under every rock. And, I mean, you know, I, you know I, I say this as a, a personal target of their lunacy. Yeah, I mean, were you, you know, on their, uh, their yeah, hate watch list yeah, for a while I wound, there? I wound up on their hate watch page. Um, and, you know, as did Majid Nawaz. I mean, Majid, you know, sued them, you know, being in England, and, and where it's much easier to sue people for libel, you know, Majid sued them and got, I think, you know, three and a half million dollars for his troubles because their allegations have just been so insane. But, you know, they, they, they made they made allegations against Ayan Hirsi Ali and, you know, Charles Murray and like just lots of people who are, who are absolutely not white supremacists and, you know, they're, they're you know, wrapped up in the same breath as David Duke or, you know, anyone else who, who is a white supremacist. So it's crazy over there, but uh, so it, it's hard to find out. It's hard, it's hard to know what the actual numbers are. Um, and, um, and we should, we should notice the, the work of bad incentives here. I mean, when you have an organization like the Southern Poverty Law Center that has to raise millions of dollars each year to function, right? It's got a massive budget. Um, it's not in the business of putting itself out of business, right? It has to keep finding the, a reason for its existence year after year. So if we, if we ever solve the problem of white supremacy uh, in this country, Given the incentives, the um, the Southern Poverty Law Center might be the last to admit it, right? Right. So, well, this is what's happening with GLAD and the ACLU right. when it comes yeah. to, you know, LGBT. Yeah, so that we, we do have an incentive yeah. problem. I mean, it's an incentive problem with, with many charities. What's clear is that white supremacy and... Um, you know, real, real racism, ideological racism, is not influencing culture and and mainstream institutions to any significant degree. Right? It's like there's, there's no, there are you know, there are no Fortune 500 companies and uh, you know, Hollywood movie studio movie studios and universities that will you know, tell you that the Holocaust didn't happen and, uh, you know, black people are, are subhuman. And, 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 that's, just, and it's been that way for a long time. Yeah, I mean, this is, the, 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 these, 
these views are are absolutely revolting. It's, it's just not happening. We're, we're not having to deal with Nazis in our in our daily lives. It's just not a mainstream phenomenon. Whereas, uh, and it wasn't even it wasn't a mainstream phenomenon even with Trump in the White House, right? I mean, it's, it's, no. Having Trump in the White House was not the same thing as having a white supremacist in the White House. And you notice how that last bit started off with, well, white supremacy isn't openly in Fortune 500 companies and turned into ideological racism, aka real racism, isn't common at all. A classic Martin Bailey. So because open Holocaust denial isn't widely accepted, Apparently, systemic or structural racism isn't real. Because anything you'd point to as an example, he would just dismiss as not meeting his bar, which is that KKK Grand Dragon. (laughs) White supremacy with Trump in the White House? Come on! What? Did you see any white hoods? And Sam likes to make it out as if the SPLC said Majid was a white supremacist or Nazi. But that's not at all what they said, and now Sam uses that instance to discredit the SPLC as a whole. Rather convenient, huh? Claiming they don't want to put themselves out of business, so they invent imaginary racists. I mean, imagine talking about Majid in 2021 having seen the harmful nonsense he's been spreading and not uttering a single word to distance yourself from him and instead use that conversation to continue to defend Majid, using the word crackpot to describe people criticizing Majid. It just boggles my mind. How are people rushing to applaud him for his too little, too late criticism of Brett Weinstein? He's praised and defended and promoted so many terrible people and terrible things over the years that I probably can't fit it into even two episodes. But I will pick some of the best examples I can think of to give you a feel for what I'm talking about. And we're only just getting started here. (laughs) You know, even though this is a series about Sam Harris mainly, I try to bring in related stories about more IDW-type characters into it, sometimes for context and depth and a better understanding of the larger picture. We must zoom out and look at this whole crew with a wider lens from time to time to really understand things. And we'll get to looking at a lot more of those connections and associations in the second part of Guilt by Association. And that's it from me for now. See you next time. Let me know what you thought of the episode. Always love hearing from you guys. Uh, That's what keeps me going. And uh, if you enjoy the show, please consider supporting it. All right, I'll see you out there in the Twitterverse. Thanks for listening to Woking Up. You can support this show by sharing it or via patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes. No Ian Mangos. And a special thanks to Intellectual Dark Wave for helping out on the musical front.